Well, good morning, everybody. And um, let me add my welcome to church, um, which, of course, uh, you probably get it every week, and I'm less regular than you. So welcome, Rick. It's great that you're here. Um, yeah, I'm glad to be here, actually. And uh, it's been a lovely um, three weeks with you, and uh, today is the last of those. So if you've really not enjoyed it, you can be glad it's over. And... Uh, and Trevor and Sue will be back next week, and that'll be a whole lot better for you all. Uh, uh, if you um, are a watch watcher, like I've been saying over the last few weeks, um, uh, let me just give a recap before you press the button on your watch, okay? Uh, but when you press the button on the watch, what's the purpose of that? From my perspective, it has no purpose at all. Okay, so I can't guarantee you when I'll stop this morning. It's my last opportunity, so settle in, okay? It could be a while. Um, but we have been on a boat trip, haven't we, uh, in Mark's Gospel, and we're coming to the end of this boat uh, trip with Jesus today. And um, when we deal with Mark's Gospel, often people deal with Mark's Gospel as though it's an evangelistic gospel, that is a gospel for the outsider, to hear about Jesus, and it certainly is that. But if you miss what's being said here for the disciples, you'll miss a very significant aspect of Mark's gospel. And uh, hopefully that will become very obvious to you um, as we finish this series today. But it would also become obvious to you if you read on into Mark chapter 6. I've got a bit of a hum here um, on the microphone. Is that Can that be... Changed a little bit, kind of. Is it just me? Can you turn it down just a fraction? That'd be great. All right, let me pray, and then you can flick your watch on. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for Sundays and the gathering of your people. Thank you for hearts that come desiring something from you. And we pray this morning that out of your goodness you would touch each and every one of our hearts with the love of Jesus, that we would know him more, that we would love him more dearly, that we would cling to him and go forth into the world trusting him. We pray, Heavenly Father, for anyone this day who does not know the love of Jesus, that this moment might be the moment when they do come to know and understand that you love them and want them as your children. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are many things in life that make the place of God so incredibly important. And I want to suggest to you that desperation is one of those places in life where we need God to be. The incurable and death are where desperation requires the presence of God and that's the encounter that Jesus has in Mark chapter 5 with the desperately incurable and with the desperation of death. After demons were dealt a decisive blow in the region of the Gerasenes, which we saw last week, the boat ride back on this particular day in Mark 5, was less eventful than the night of the storm. You might remember when Jesus calmed the storm. 
But the landing in chapter 5, verse 21, is not less eventful. In verse 21, we step from the boat with Jesus into a large crowd and a moment in time where our worst possibilities are played out in the lives and circumstances that intersect with Jesus. This is an extraordinary moment as Mark conveys the circumstances with the clarity of eyewitness account. There is Jairus, the synagogue leader, whose daughter is dying in verse 23. And there is an unnamed woman whose life, verse 25, is bleeding away. I've got to say, I love this little moment in Mark's Gospel. I love the journey from beach to bedside because it makes obvious that Jesus, if you watch carefully, is no respecter of position. Jairus, well, he may be a big wheel in the local synagogue and everyone knows him by name. But Jesus doesn't ignore the nameless, does he? In the passage, Jesus is not wooed by titles and privilege, as some people are. Jesus just sees people in need. He doesn't see colour, he doesn't see nationality, he doesn't see anything but people and people in their need. And you could go away with that right now, couldn't you? And that'd be enough. You could switch your watch off and I could sit down. You say, well, why don't you? Because I've got more to say. But Jesus sees you. Jairus sees Jesus, verse 22, you'll notice that, and the woman hears about Jesus, verse 27. It's no small thing that the synagogue ruler would, of course, come to Jesus when you consider that it was from the synagogue that some people plotted to kill Jesus after he'd healed the man with the withered hand back in chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel. It's amazing, though, as you think about this, what desperation can do for a person. We don't know much about Jairus. Was he one of the plotters? Maybe he was. But desperation now brings him to Jesus. And I imagine history is filled with people drawn by their desperation to Jesus. And perhaps that's your history this morning. Maybe something desperate happened in your life or maybe something desperate is happening in your life and for some reason God is using that to draw you to himself. That's something to be thankful for, isn't it? It means that sometimes our desperations aren't the worst times of life, are they? But in fact, in God's hands can be used for some of the best things in life. Jairus may, be, may desperately seek the touch of Jesus on his dying daughter, but mindful of the opposition that Jesus had encountered in the synagogue in Mark 3, it really is a glory to God that Jesus actually at this point 
doesn't falter in his preparedness to care for Jairus. I bet you that if I was treated badly in church, I'd spit the dummy and I'd say, well, the heck with you. I hope I wouldn't do that. But the temptation's always there, isn't it? Think about this. I know no one quite like Jesus. You can question him. You can hate him. You can plot to destroy him, as we have seen or would see in the opening chapters of Mark's biography. But when desperation has you come in faith to him, the one you reject will actually care for you. Isn't that beautiful? Jairus sees Jesus. But when I read verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, I have to wonder what the woman heard and where she heard it. She's clearly around the crowd following this woman, but she hear, did she hear Jairus's request of Jesus and think, well, hang on a minute, if Jesus is significant enough for the synagogue ruler to seek help from, then perhaps I should also. Well, whatever the case, her approach is different to that of Jairus. Perhaps her problem and her status compared to Jairus made her feel unworthy to approach Jesus. So she sneaks in the crowd. It's worth understanding her circumstances, though, at this point as well. It's not clear what her flow of blood is, but most likely it refers to her menstrual cycle that is no longer a cycle. The outcome of which affects everything. Physically, she bleeds. Conjugally, it affects intimacy. Personally, it prevents children. And socially, she is ritually unclean, which makes her an outcast in her society and untouchable. She might know Jairus, but she was not permitted in his synagogue. Of course, her situation has worsened, as we read the text, by doctor's bills that have left her destitute and incurable. So what does she do? She comes to Jesus. Now, we, we who live with Western medicine and hospitals may read this and think that this woman's circumstance is unusual. But I read a book just um, a little while back called An African Doctor. I'd recommend it to you. Um, uh, and in that book, its focus is on fistula issues in women. Fistula, if you don't know what this is, is an injury that occurs in pregnant women due to prolonged labours. And apart from the often sad outcome in stillbirths, Fistula leaves a woman leaking. If the mother doesn't die, the embarrassment and the leakage smell leads to the woman often being divorced and ostracised from their entire community, destitute and depressed, with only the prospect of death. That's a modern issue, not in Western culture. Got a lot to be thankful for in living in the West, haven't you? Uh, 
But could you imagine the joy that follows when a Christian doctor like Andrew Browning, who wrote the book, An African Doctor, when Andrew repairs the fistula and the woman is restored and healed? Imagine the joy of that. It's too distant from us to understand the joy of that, isn't it? When we come to the text of Scripture, we read it like, oh, yeah, she, was, she had a flow of blood. Yeah, okay. And we're kind of nonplussed by it. But imagine someone with that level of destitution suddenly finding that they're healed. Well, as we encounter Jairus and the woman, it's staggering to think that Jairus, the synagogue ruler, would probably have been the one to turn her away from attending the synagogue. And all of this might indicate why in verse 27 we read, she came up behind Jesus in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, in the same way her ritual uncleanness made her clothing unclean, it was a popular belief that the power of a person was also in what they wore. Now, this is not to be confused with the power dressing of our age, which is all about show and has little substance. You know the kind of power dressing I'm talking about? The kind that you took on this morning when you stood in front of the mirror and said, do I look okay? Uh, yeah, I think I'm dressed all right. Will, I, will people think I look all right? Yeah. Not that kind of power dressing, okay? Got that? All right? If you played that game this morning, get over yourself. All right? I'm leaving this week. You'll be pleased to know. But it was all superstitious, really. So when the woman felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering, verse 29... It's not all that surprising that Jesus confronts her superstitious thinking, her superstitious faith, for the purpose of bringing her into a true faith, a right faith, which he does. Verse 30 is a great correction, I think, to superstitious faith, if you read it carefully. At once Jesus realised, underline this, that power had gone out from, what does it say? Him, not his clothing, him. His disciples answered, and, and, and yet you ask, sorry, what he turned around in, in, in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? It's not the clothes that solve her problem. It's Jesus who solves her problem. Apparently this was an extraordinary question, though, for Jesus to ask, who touched my clothes, for the disciples' reaction, verse 31, was, you see the people crowded against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Two things stand out for me in this moment of time. The object of the woman's faith is not clothing, but the one who wears it. The object of your faith needs to be the person of Jesus Christ. The second thing that stands out here is that faith in Jesus Christ, you might notice, is not private religious stuff, but it demands public identification with Jesus, as you can see 
as the woman comes and tells the whole truth. Now, I know some of you may be of a vintage that once said, we don't talk about politics, religion or sex at the dinner table. Some of you may actually come from that vintage. That vintage is almost gone because you can go to almost any dinner these days and they're talking about sex, religion and politics, aren't they? All right? But religion is not a private thing when it comes to Christ. It's not your private deal. And Jesus doesn't let this woman stay private. And perhaps there's a reminder for us all in this moment, if you are a Christian having been saved by faith, then there is no alternative for you but to be publicly identified with Christ. So let me ask you, do people know you are a Christian and that you are unashamedly so? Because they should. Verse 32, she came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. You might remember that the demons fell at Jesus' feet. Remember that? And the Jairus did the same in verse 22. You might remember that the disciples trembled with fear during the calming of the storm and asked, who is this that the winds and waves obey? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. On her knees before Jesus is a woman who knows what we should all know, and that is that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, I had a question. Did you see what was just said then? This is what happens when you just gloss over the text. But did you see what just happened in the text? Let me read it to you again. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Did you pick it up? Not just a woman now in the text. Did you see it? But on the lips of Jesus, what is she? A daughter. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer, tells of the time he was walking down the street and passed a beggar. Tolstoy reached into his pocket to give the beggar some money, but his pockets were empty. Tolstoy turned to the man and said, I'm sorry, my brother, but I have nothing to give. And the beggar brightened up and he said, you have given me more than I asked for. You have called me brother. There are many beautiful things in life, aren't there? But for Jesus, the son of the living God, to call this woman of 12 years suffering, daughter, It's just magnificent. And friends, don't miss this for yourself because that is what you and I are on the lips of Jesus. Not just a man or a woman, but sons and daughters of the living God. I wish we were in America at this point. Like I said last week, They'd be going, hallelujah, brother. Oh, man. And you're all sitting there going, "Mm." (laughs) hmm. 
Don't you, don't you love a happy ending? Such a happy ending. And then verse 35. <laughs> and then comes verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Remember him? He was part of the story. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? I wonder if you can see the irony here in the story. As Jesus calls the woman with a flow of blood daughter in verse 34, news arrives for Jairus, verse 35, your daughter's dead. Two daughters. Remember Jairus, well, he's the one who fell to his knees in front of Jesus before a miracle is given, before a miracle is given. Not in response to a miracle like the woman in the story. He simply asks for the touch of Jesus' hands on his dying daughter. And I think when I read this, I can almost hear the question screaming from the passage as it does in life generally. If, if only. Why, why did we allow for the distraction of this lady? <laughs> that woman was sick, but my little girl was dying. What? Why? You know, in my experience, falling on your knees before another is all about life. It's to fall in the hope of mercy. It's to see in the one before whom we fall the power to change circumstances for the better. And in most circumstances, when the word comes, your daughter is dead, it would appear that better is no longer a possibility. It's into that overheard conversation uh, between Jairus and those who come that Jesus says to him in verse 36, don't be afraid, just believe. In fact, it's amidst a storm of commotion and wailing and mourners laughing at Jesus. That's, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Don't you think? One minute the professional mourners are out there crying and carrying on and Jesus comes and they laugh at him. When Jesus says the child is not dead but asleep. And at that point, Jesus enters where the child was, touches her as Jairus asked him to, and he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she does. Extraordinary. And how interesting that Mark records a 12-year sentence for the woman and the child. Did you pick that up? The child was 12 years old and dead. While the woman who had suffered for 12 while, while the woman had suffered for 12 years, one daughter has lived for 12 years and now is gone. Another daughter has for 12 years been as good as dead. The living dead. 
The loss of the 12-year-old would have been a lifetime of suffering, of course, for Jairus, the one who's left behind, while 12 years of suffering was ruining the lifetime of the woman. An incurable flow of blood and a lifeless body are presented for us. But immediately. Did you see that word in Mark's gospel? Immediately. Comes up again and again throughout Mark's gospel. Verse 29 and verse 42. Things change immediately at the touch of Jesus' hand. I hope you noticed that word. In the power of Christ, the incurable is cured and the dead are raised to life. Can I just ask you a question? Is all of this somehow kind of distant from you this morning? Are you thinking like, oh, this is a quaint story, you know, and yeah, it talks about Jesus, but really doesn't have a lot to do with me? Is that what you're thinking? Because I want to say to you, it's got everything to do with you. Because we have an incurable disease. And if you're not a Christian, or you can remember the time when you weren't, the scriptures tell us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Who can fix the incurable reality of sin in your life? And who can raise you to a life that is eternal when indeed sin would do everything to destroy you? This passage has everything to do with you. Here the lordship of Jesus shows us that he can heal the incurable and that he can raise the dead. And as the gospel will go on, we will be introduced to the one who will bear the incurable reality of our sin in his own body and suffer its consequences in death so that we might live. This passage has everything to do with you. If it had nothing to do with you, you could never hear the word son or daughter on the lips of Jesus about you. On the stormy sea, creation bowed to his command and there was calm. In a possessed man, evil spirits relinquished their hold at his command and there was freedom. In the touch of his robe, the incurable was cured and from the deathbed at his command, life is given. Who is this Jesus who commands creation? who rules the spiritual realm, who cures the incurable and raises the dead. Well, I can tell you this, that where the word of a king is, there is power. And we've seen power like no other power in the past three weeks. He is Lord. And to him, the desperate can come and find peace from this king. So how should we respond? Well, if you watch the passage, it should be pretty obvious, shouldn't it? In verse 34, Jesus said, Daughter, your faith has healed you. In verse 36, Jesus says to Jairus, 
don't be afraid, just believe. Now, an educated person, if they were reading the text and thinking about how should we respond here, would be would respond by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, wouldn't they? But an educated person doesn't always see them come to right responses, does it? In fact, people go to university, don't they, sometimes, and just come out better educated fools, don't they? Somebody once said to me about PhDs, I was at a church, actually you would know this person, it was Glenn Davies, um, your bishop, and uh, he said to me when he came to our church to speak, he said, he said, Rick, he said, do you know how many PhDs are in your congregation? I said, no, I've got no idea. He said, I think that's probably a good thing, you'd be intimidated. And then he said, no, you wouldn't. A PhD is somebody who studies more and more about less and less until they know almost nothing about much. <laughs> Don't let that stop you from getting an education. (laughs) But what I do want to say to you is, we know that even educated people don't respond to Jesus with faith. But perhaps somebody who is educated but desperate might actually do so. Well, we're coming to the end. What must the 12 disciples be thinking as witnesses to all these extraordinary miracles? Okay? What a discipleship they have been receiving on this boat trip. And that will prove so incredibly important for them because in seven more verses, Jesus will send them out. I don't know if you noticed this to teach in villages with authority over evil spirits and to heal, taking nothing for the journey but a staff and faith in the one who sends them to call people to repentance and faith. And who is the one that sent them? The one who calmed the storm. The one who cast out the spirits. The one who healed the sick. They go out with his authority. If they've been watching and they've been listening, I don't know about you, but sent on that mission, I think I'd go with a little more confidence, wouldn't you? These last few weeks, we have been on and off the boat with Jesus and his disciples through storm, confrontation and now desperation. It's been no cruise for the disciples. And it won't be for us. But what have we learnt? And what will we be as Jesus' people? Faithlessness, you might remember, makes for cowardly fear of a storm. We saw that the first week. Faithful is what made the man freed from the demons want to be with Jesus wherever he goes or to serve him wherever he sends. Faithlessness, cowardice, faithful, I'm going with Jesus. 
wherever he sends. But faithfulness, of course, is the response of Jesus to the needs of us all. It's the action of this Lord Jesus to take the incurable sinfulness in our lives to the cross and in resurrection to promise us eternal life. It is in faithfulness now to him we publicly should identify with Jesus and take the good news about him to our desperate world. And in the same way that Jesus commissioned his disciples in the next chapter to go, with his authority. I want to finish this series with you, with the same commission, to go in faith, to deliver people from the demonic, to see them saved from their sins through the preaching of the gospel that Jesus is both Lord and Saviour of our world. If you don't know that today, would you please talk to me before you go home today? There's nothing that this church would want more for you than you know this Jesus who can meet you in your desperation and give you the promise of a life that's eternal and full. And all God's people, I hope, can say, Amen. Amen.